Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health, broken down in a relatable way, and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara. And today we have Dr. Stephen Mandel and Sam Mandel of Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles joining us. Dr. Mandel and his team have performed over 13,000 infusions. Today we are going to hear how ketamine is providing relief and more to people that are suffering from depression and other mood disorders. So hey guys, how are you? Nice, Katie. Good to see you. Good to see Good, you. Good, Katie. How you doing? Um, so I had no idea that ketamine was uh, for non-party use. When my shrink first recommended this, I thought I need to start seeing someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know, if your shrink doesn't recommend it nowadays, you got to start seeing someone else. That's a I, good point, Sam. Yeah, I guess so. So, um, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Mandel. Can you take us through a quick, a quick history of ketamine, like as an anesthetic? Sure. As an anesthetic or as it's used now for mood? I w- I'm always curious. I mean, now I know I'm such an expert on ketamine, but I'm, I'm curious of the history of it as an anesthetic and what, where did it come from? What is it's it used for exactly? Yeah. It's interesting. Okay. In, in the fifties, a drug company was doing uh, work on a uh, drug, on a class of drug called the fencyclidines. Ketamine is unique. It's unlike any other psychedelic. Some people don't call it a psychedelic because it's really a dissociative anesthetic, but it has, it's experientially, it is definitely a psychedelic, but it's not, a, it's in a different chemical category from all the other psychedelics, the botanicals and the synthetics. Okay. And I can go on and on, but basically they were working with the fencyclodines. They came up with something called PCP, which was a great anesthetic, but had terrible side effects. In 1962, they came up with ketamine and they messed with it carefully because it was a candidate for FDA approval as an anesthetic. So it wasn't until 1970 that it finally got approved as an anesthetic. And it was approved by the FDA in 1970 as an anesthetic for humans. Uh, and I make all those words matter because you'll hear people not only say it's a party drug, you'll hear people say, oh, yeah, the cat tranquilizer. I, yes. knew, it as, I knew it as the horse tranquilizer. The horse tranquilizer. It is widely used in veterinary medicine. And why is that? Because it's so good <laughs> and because it's so safe. And because we lose a lot of animals in veterinary medicine to anesthesia, even though the surgery is successful, their cardiovascular systems are unstable. They're not good at, they're they're high risk for anesthesia. I just saw a film last night about anesthesia for giraffes. It was just a freaky thing. It's really hard to give a long necked animal an anesthetic. (laughs) Anyway, that's not a good thing for a podcast. I, I want to tell you. No, I um, want to know more. Are you serious? Like what, how much, how much ketamine does it take to put a giraffe down? That's what I, that's what I. <laughs> Depends on how badly the giraffe wants to go down. 
No, it's an anesthetic. Right. It's used for putting someone to sleep for surgery. In veterinary it medicine. More, I'll tell you, it takes more um, ketamine to put a draft to sleep than it does to help it with its depression. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, Sam is quite right. Actually, probably 10 times as much. But, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's, so it wasn't really, it was not FDA approved till the 1970. And it was approved as an anesthetic. It okay. really quickly became widely used. Unlike other anesthetics, it doesn't depress the cardiovascular system. It doesn't depress respiration. In less than anesthetic doses, it doesn't compromise functioning too much. In less than anesthetic doses, it's analgesic. What does it, that mean? It, 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 it provides analgesia. It deadens pain. Okay. I'm glad you asked what that means because ketamine quickly became so widely accepted and so was so exciting because we were at war at that time. And ketamine was used in the battlefield to give people anesthesia I'm sorry, to give people pain relief in a way that didn't depress their cardiovascular system, it didn't depress their respiration, and that left them conscious enough to participate in their own evacuation, but free enough of pain to do so. So they first had it, so it wasn't, it wasn't for used in surgeries on soldiers. Initially, they used it as a pain, pain relief. Initially, it was approved as an anesthetic for surgery on soldiers and others. Okay. And battlefield medics quickly discovered in less than anesthetic doses, it was a great pain reliever for the wounded. And unlike other pain relievers like morphine, the ketamine left them pain relieved, but also with it enough to help in their own evacuation. And so did they, and I think you were the one that told me this, that they also realized it helped with PTSD, is that correct? That was not realized at that time. Not at that time later. But it was again, war, it was again war wounded people having, needing an anesthetic. And it was discovered sort of as a secondary finding, not only did it provide them with good anesthesia, but it relieved their symptoms of PTSD. The next question is how did you discover this could potentially help people's mood disorders? And I think that was in, was that the 90s, the early 90s? The early 90s. I want to date you, Dr. Mandel, you know, like I don't. Well, I didn't do all of these things. I, I didn't know. discover I it in 1962 or patented in 1970. Um, but I've been using ketamine on patients. You weren't in the lab cooking it up the, for the first time? Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> I, yeah. I really wish I'd been around doing that then, but no. I, I, I did give... Uh, ketamine as an anesthetic to humans in the 1970s with very good results. But I didn't use it for mood disorders until the teens. Until the teens. 2000 teens. But in between, it was discovered by others to be very potent for mood disorders. Initial reports were for the war wounded having ketamine anesthetics and it, as an incidental finding that their the relief of their PTSD was also remarkably uh, it was noticed because it was, you know, this is very counterintuitive. Now we think, of, oh, what's the big deal? Well, to have an anesthetic way after the anesthesia had worn off, leave people relieved of their symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, 
that was like, what the hell is going on here? That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. That's why it took a decade to sink in because it is not credible. Nobody believed it. Even those observing it said, you know, because it didn't come labeled. This is from the ketamine. It said, hey, Joe had anesthesia for his broken hip from his, his shrapnel. They took out shrapnel. And Joe woke up and he didn't have nightmares anymore. And he started laughing at jokes. And he didn't need to sit with his back to the wall and his eye on the door. Right. What's going on with Joe? Well, maybe his therapy's working. Maybe his Prozac's working. Maybe the morphine helped him. It took a hell of a long time to figure out, oh my God, it's the ketamine. Right. It's not intuitive. You know, they started to do studies, um, you know, early studies at, at Yale, at the National Institute of Mental Health, Stanford, um, and a lot of other leading institutions started to catch on and find this is pretty incredible because the, uh, the results were like 70%, 71% of people suffering from depression, PTSD, were getting relief from their symptoms. And they weren't just taking people who were suffering from depression, they were taking people who had treatment resistant depression. So they had tried um, at least two or more treatments, uh, an adequate trial of, of uh, conventional or traditional treatments and gotten no relief. Right. Most of them had a long list, much more than two of, you know, um, antidepressant pills, medication, sometimes TMS or ECT therapy, and really had um, exhausted their options. And a lot of the people in those, especially those early studies were really, um, really kind of desperate and at the end of their, um, at the end of their ropes and 70% of them got relief. So now it's very, very significant. I mean, SSRIs, you know, uh, which are pretty typical antidepressant pills most people are familiar with, are like Zoloft or uh Seroquel. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're probably 35, 40% effective, maybe. At the most, I think, probably. Or you often, you know, in a year you have to go up, sometimes side effects kick in, who knows? Exactly. And then there's that trial and error, trying different doses, different combinations, takes weeks to months to work. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, if they do work, what is, how do we define work, right? A lot of, a lot of people who take them would say that, yeah, well, you know, I didn't want to kill myself anymore. Yeah, well, I could get out of bed again and go to work, but I wasn't really living. I wasn't thriving. I was just kind of surviving. I was just going through the motions and maybe I wasn't as low, but I didn't have the highs of life either. I didn't feel joy. I didn't feel happiness. I was just existing, which is obviously a horrible place to be as well. Um, that's one of the beautiful things about ketamine is the, the quality of relief. So um, when we talk about it works, you know, it's really, really giving people um, uh, a sense of joy back and getting them back in touch with themselves and the people in their life who they care about. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point because many antidepressants, I, and I can speak from personal experience, they may make you feel like, well, I don't want to kill myself, but you're not laughing. You're not, you're not really back in the throes of life. Like you just sort of feel like, okay, well, I can get through the day where ketamine can really like kind of jumble up your brain. I don't make you feel like you've gone on a vacation for three months or something in a good way, you know, like a real refresher where I think that's true, where a lot of times SSRIs or different drugs that they can make you feel a little bit better, but now you have hives or you have erectile dysfunction or, you know, you have um, headaches all the time, you know, it just, the side effects can be, you know, really extreme. 
Yeah, to add weight gain, loss of libido, yes. and then, you know, often additional medications follow those side effects. Oh, well, you have side effect from this drug. Well, let's have No, they always want to counterbalance that. Like, oh, okay, well, you're on Adderall and that's making you kind of like too hyper. So we'll give you Stratera because that'll, you know, they always, it's always, and you're like, what? I'm like, I'm on 40 drugs now. Like, yeah, it's just, it makes you, and you can spend, I think you said this, Dr. Mendel, when I first um, sought out treatment, it becomes a full-time job almost trying to find the medicine that can work. I mean, it's really exhausting. You spend so much time, money, effort, and it's, you know, like years will sometimes go on and you're like, I still don't feel well. Yes. But you point out a really central point. Sam has been a real champion of more medicine is not necessarily better medicine. Yeah. And it's really, we've seen it in patients and in our own family. You're piling on the medicines. You, you really told it beautifully. It, medicine helps you, but it has such uh, unpleasant or disruptive side effects. You had another medicine. And that helps, but it has side effects. And you had another medicine. That, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But taking away all of that, taking away all of that, the, the serotonergic and the, and the, no, the, the other- I know what you mean neurotransmitting affecting drugs yeah most of them and particularly the antipsychotics used for mood disorders not for psychosis now we're talking about for mood disorders tend to compress one's life yes the lows are much higher but the highs are much lower you end up living in a narrow band and some people feel kind of zombie-like or trapped in it and what Sam has described, and you've described from your own experience, that feeling free and feeling like a range of emotions and pleasure and joy, yes. that's, that's much more likely to be given to you from this than from those other medicines, the tra traditional antidepressants. And also, um, it can work, correct me if I'm wrong, it can work much quicker, I feel like, right? <laughs> Not if you're wrong. Oh. Thomas Insel, who was head of the National Institute of Mental Health at the time, he was the man for mental health. And I was going to say in the United States, officially, yes, but in the world. And in 1914, he wrote in his in his blog to all the... 2014. 2000, I was going to say, I was, like, <laughs> I was like, 1914. Um, no, no, that's a different... That's the right <laughs> In 2014, which is early in ketamine, That's uh, true. he wrote, this is the most remarkable breakthrough in the treatment of depression in 50 years. Wow. And his first point as to why it was remarkable, I have three points, but his first point was all the other things take weeks to months. Years, sometimes, in well, my opinion. Some can take, but honestly, I've had medicines on ice, it takes almost 10 months, you know what I mean? To really yes. see the difference. Yes, ketamine works in, in hours to days yeah. to relieve your, your symptoms. And for suicidality especially, that time can be the difference between a live and a dead patient. Yeah, it's true, absolutely. So what is the most common reason someone comes to your clinic? Like, is it depression, anxiety, OCD, PT, SD? Is there something you see more than others? 
We see depression. We see what's called um, major depressive disorder, which mm -hmm. Sam had, had mentioned as treatment-resistant depression. If it's if if people continue to have major depressive disorder after two or more uh, adequate trials of traditional antidepressants and bipolar disorder type one or type two who are depressed. Those are the major, major two groups of patients. We get many other patients. We get a lot of substance abuse patients. We get postpartum depression patients. We get patients with disordered eating. Uh, right. Sam can probably give you a whole list with approximate percentages. The major ones are people with um, major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder who are depressed. And um, obviously this has gone up in the past year, I know. Because I know when we last spoke, you talked about how, which I thought was really cool that you guys stayed open throughout the whole pandemic, yeah. right? Katie, you, yeah. think, you think COVID was bad for depression? <laughs> Please, I thought, yeah. I, meanwhile, I had friends calling me like, I can't believe I'm depressed. And I, I felt like, welcome to my life. Like, like finally yeah. people know what, know what it's like. I was just talking about this, you know, the incidences of depression and suicide, you know, went up two and three folds over the last year. And even in the first, you know, couple of months of the pandemic, substance abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse, wow. doubled, literally doubled in like a matter of weeks or a month. Um, horrible. But I was just talking to somebody about this, so the silver lining of it all and of all the suffering that we've all endured uh, lately, the kind of collective trauma that we've got undergone is that it's really um, caused for a lot more people to have an understanding that maybe didn't have it before of what Absolutely. a lot of other people go through. And it sparked conversation and, and kind of broken the stigma and gotten a lot more people talking about mental health, talking about the importance of it in companies um, you know, prioritizing or reprioritizing it for their for their employees. So I look at that as kind of the silver lining of all of the the pain we've been through, and hopefully we can carry this progress with us forward and actually get get ahead with it. No, it's true. I think many people didn't understand, like, oh, there's nothing to look forward to. You know, which was COVID. Oh, I have nowhere to go. I have to, and it's like that's how it is when you're manically depressed. And also just just to highlight something very important about depression, we're now seeing a terrible hangover with people who are now able to go out. They're able to not wear masks. They're able to sit in restaurants. They don't want to, right? They, want, they don't want to or they want to, but they're not feeling better. It's not doing it for them. Yeah. And they're having to confront the fact their mood, if they have a mood disorder, isn't coming from outside. Yeah. It's coming from inside. It's not going to be treated situationally. That's a good point. I think a lot of times people think their problems and mental problems can be treated situationally, whether it's going on a trip. Oh, I'll find a boyfriend. Oh, I need the job. Oh, I need, you know, this outfit. And it's really, it's always coming from within. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. With, that, with all of those things, it's internal. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of people resist that until the few, select few who get the chance to have it all can really say, I've, I've, I've been to the top of all those mountains and it ain't up there. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> you true. Know? Yeah, yeah. But you know, with what you were saying, we stayed open the whole time. We didn't close yes. at all. And um, we're proud of that. It was quite a, <laughs> a feat. 
And um, even it in was March 2020, we yeah. never closed. Never closed. Never closed. And we agonized about this daily. It was very, very one of the hardest things that I think we've had to decide. You know, um, we had lots and lots of conversations about it. We wanted to protect our patients, particularly our suicidal patients. Right. But we also owe a duty to our staff. And we wanted to be sure we weren't just being cavalier. And uh, we were very meticulous. And we, we were among the first to get vaccinated when it became available. And we always wore masks. And we always sanitized. And Sam was amazing about really, we had the strictest protocols in the, as strict as they got. We were as good as any hospital. Right. And, you know, touch wood, nobody on our staff ever got sick and nobody uh, who we treated ever got sick or brought illness into the clinic. That's took temperatures, yeah. we, did, we did testing, the whole nine yards. Yeah, it was pretty, it was, uh, it was a lot. It was a lot to, to manage. I'm so glad it's getting better, oh boy. It, it worked. It worked out. But you know what's what's interesting and what's kind of the sad um, juxtaposition is that while the depression, anxiety, PTSD, suicide increased a lot um, over the last year, we we didn't see. We saw a huge decrease in patients because people were scared to go out of the house. They were scared to come into an office. They were out of work and they were feeling financially restricted and, you know, the treatment is an out-of-pocket cost um, or they were, um, you know, on an unemployment. Um, there, were, there were a lot of op added obstacles to keep people from being able to get treatment with us. So it was, uh, it was challenging. Right. I want to throw in another obstacle. This is not talked about very much. This is a treatment that most people haven't heard of and don't understand. And many physicians have only dimly heard of it and don't understand it. And this last year has been accompanied by the weaponization of facts and of science and a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And the, the feeling you get to choose to believe what you want to believe and that the facts are whatever you choose to make them has impacted our ability to get through to people that this really is life-saving, that this does make a difference. This is not a TV advertisement. This is not hype. Right. This is a way of saving your life. Do you feel that though, even in Southern California, where I feel like it's pretty progressive, right? You guys are smiling. <laughs> I, I think it is. I think, I think, you know, there's a lot of noise out there and um, there's a lot everywhere. And even within, you know, the same tribes, if you will, you know, politics or- Treatment centers and stuff, you mean? I was in a stone yard yesterday picking up pavers for my patio, which I'm replacing some cracked pavers in a very tony part of Santa Monica. A very a what? Very tony, a very upscale part of Santa Monica. And the guy behind me in line uh, out of a uh, $100,000 plus car with his very coughed wife, coughed wife, I uh, was told very nicely by the lady who was taking care of me, a very sweet lady, yeah. that she would not be able to serve him until he put on a mask. And I was standing there in my scrubs. Yeah. And he turned to me and he said, well, you know this is all BS. Why don't you tell her this is nonsense? 
And I said, well, sir, I think actually that does contribute to saving lives and to protecting others from illness. And he said, you're a liberal. Oh my God. This is a well-dressed, well-presented man who just went to pieces. And I said, well, I'm not talking about my politics, sir. I'm talking about the science. Yeah. Yeah. And he well, this is were a, you in a mask? This has happened. No, I didn't have him. Yes, I had a mask on because the-, the um, Right, so this, why would he even like try to get you as an ally of that? That's because so he funny. saw me in scrubs. Well, oh. I think to the- yeah, I think to that's bring a good it back, question though, because if I was in Scrubs, I should know better. People are. I think. I think just to this bring really it happened back. happened yesterday morning. I believe it. People don't like to be told what to do. You know, especially in LA. They're hearing it wrong. Right. Would people like to be helped to help others? I would, I but I don't think everyone would, honestly. Even with COVID the stuff. small cost of having to put a little elastic over your around your ears. People don't want to be inconvenienced. It's bad framing. It's uh, people don't like to be told what to do. Don't people want to know how they can help others? I think if we could just try to take a step back though and bring it to the topic back to the topic at hand because yes, I think we you, could Sam. debate, you know, masks and politics and all that, you know, quite endlessly. But I think what it what not all of that necessarily applies to the challenges that we see in mental health and in particular with ketamine, which I, with ketamine, which I want to highlight is that there's, there are different issues at play here and why most people aren't aware of treatment. Um, and in, in some ways it's, um, it's, it's a side of, um, healthcare that a lot of people don't really recognize, which is that ketamine is, FDA approved as an anesthetic, but it's not FDA approved for depression. Yes. Uh, it's an off-label use, which is one of the reasons why insurance uses that as, as a cause to not cover it for most people. So how are we you able state. to do this if it's not FDA approved? Are you guys doing something else? The medicine, so the, yeah, so the medicine is FDA approved, but um, the treatment itself is considered an off-label use. And it's very, very common, actually. One in three psychiatric medications in the U.S. are prescribed off-label. And about one in four of all prescriptions are prescribed off-label. Yes, I'm actually on a few that are not for, yeah. So that's yeah. that's a good point. I think some people, not everyone knows that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's important. And what off-label means is simply that it was found, a medicine has been found, or there's a good basis to be using it for something for, for you know, a demographic or a condition other than what it was originally approved for. Right, that's like so, Viagra was, wasn't it a heart medicine? I think originally it was a heart medicine okay. and they realized, oh, this can be used for erectile dysfunction. That's... Yeah, there's more to the story, but that's correct. Yeah, or the uh, bottom or line. Um, Rogaine, okay. which is for hair growth, was yeah. originally approved as a antihypertensive. Oh. And the people working in the, in the pharmaceutical house started to go hair. They were like, what's going on? <laughs> Who were working with the drug. And they said, oh my God, we got something here. Yeah. So sometimes the side effects can really come in handy there. But yes, go on, Sam. You were saying that- Same with aspirin. We, many people take aspirin to, as a blood thinner to, to reduce the risk of heart attack. Aspirin is an anti-inflammatory. It's not approved. Now, aspirin isn't a prescription drug, and it came out way before there was an FDA, but it's the same idea. 
Yeah, it's a pain reliever fever reducer, right? And then you take a baby aspirin once you reach a certain age to a lot of people do to minimize the chances of a heart attack. Um, but these are important distinctions for people to recognize and that the FDA doesn't, it's not that ketamine for depression isn't approved because it's disapproved or it's bad right. or the FDA doesn't like it or it's not safe. It just, you know, the FDA approval process requires a, an enormous amount of time and money to go through and ketamine is a generic drug. The patent is up. So no one can profit from the sale of ketamine. That's what we and talked so, about last time. And when did the patents yes. go up, like become no more? Oh, like, like no one can make money off of it. So that's well, why you, you can make money, Katie. It's not exactly true that you can't make money, but it's like you can go to um, CVS and get CVS aspirin. Right. Uh, you know, you get a bottle of 100 for a, a dollar and a quarter, or you can buy Bayer aspirin. Right. And Bayer aspirin is 375. And of course, it's better. And of course, really, the active ingredient is exactly the same. Really? I'm a brand whore, so I would buy bear. <laughs> Letting everybody know. I think I, I hope well, you I don't find think... another way to describe yourself. But... <laughs> I don't I don't know if the if the but a brand fan. Of, um, I can't get generic... CVS ketamine though. I'm waiting for the day. But you are always getting CVS ketamine. We talk about ketamine not being approved. Ketamine right. actually is approved for depression when given intranasally. And it's, it's an, an, an isomer of ketamine called S-ketamine and the brand name is Bravado. And it's literally a hundred times more expensive and half as effective, but it is approved. How were they able to approve that and not the um, I, or intravenous, By is that the right word? Isolating, um, one of the, is the, right word. the uh, racemic mixture. No, but I'm saying they they haven't approved the in, like through an IV, you know, intravenous like that. When the FDA approved. Well, I was trying to say if I if I could just finish what I was saying about the FDA quiet. approval process. Sorry, what's that? I said we're gonna be quiet, Doctor Padilla. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just I was, hear what you want to say. Yeah, I think it's useful information. I was just trying to point out that. Um, the distinction between FDA approval and off-label use because the fact that ketamine isn't, isn't that there's something wrong with it. I was uh, trying to show that it's very expensive, that a new drug from idea to approval is about a billion dollars with a B and takes years. And an existing drug like ketamine will take uh, probably a lot less, but still tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to get it approved for this particular use. And because the patent is up, no one's going to foot that bill because they can't recoup their, their costs. So what Janssen did, and they were acquired by Johnson & Johnson, a uh, pharmaceutical company, was they took one isomer, uh, the S isomer of ketamine, which is two, two molecules, and they patented the one, which is more or less, except for some minor distinctions, pretty much the same on its own as it is together, though not quite, but for the purposes of this conversation, let's just say it is, but they took it and they made it into a nasal spray. So that is a different route of administration. And then they required that a patient start a new antidepressant and they added several other requirements to try to make it package it as a wholly altogether different enough thing to own it. And it isn't because that was actually more effective or better for patients or safe or there's any advantage to anyone except for pharmaceutical company to put in enough extra little differences 
so they could call it theirs. They require and you to go it, on an uh, antidepressant? Yeah, they require you to start a like new a one new as one. a part of the... Mm -hmm. That's kind of outrageous. And the treatment schedule. The point, there's a great deal of nuance. And really, we could spend a day or two on the whole yeah. pharmaceutical industry situation is uh, really worth looking at because we're a capitalistic society and these companies are in business to make money. That's how we set things up. They're not bad guys. They're doing what they're supposed to do, which is to make profits. Ketamine is an extraordinarily low markup item. It's a commodity item. They can't make money on it. Right. S-ketamine, Spravato, is a very high markup item. It's newly patented. There are enormous profits to be made if they can sell it. So they spend a great deal of their time and energy selling it. But this highlights the point that I think Sam has been making, I'm trying to make. In the United States, patients and doctors get almost all of their information about medicines from the people who sell them. And the people who sell medicines want you to know about the medicines that make money. Yeah. They don't want you to know about the medicines they make that have no markup. So they really spend their time, their energy, their billboards, their detail people telling you about the latest and the greatest because that's where the profits are. They don't tell you about the most effective, the least side effects, the uh, quickest to cure you. They're not really interested in cure. The most money comes to them if they can find something that you have to take every day forever. Yeah, the rest of your life. Yes. And that's not so because they're bad people. That's how we've set it up. So you can't expect them to be telling you about what's best no, for you. No, they're businessmen or women. Sorry? It's, they're in the business of making money. I agree. Yes. It's not fabulous. Just, it's a business. You didn't hire them to advise you about your health care. Right. They, they pay for your comedies. They pay for your dramedies. They pay for your whatever you see on the tube. And they pay for it with their ads. And their ads pitch what makes them money. Not what gets you healthy, what makes them money. Right. I guess I just wish that with the FDA that they, that they could have a, maybe a division or something like that, or the government could have a fund where they could grant approvals for things that could really change the country and the world for the better. And that while this system we have, this capitalistic system of, you know, for profit, uh, we don't need to debate whether or not that's a good system, but when you have something like ketamine, which really is the biggest breakthrough in depression in 50 years, which is literally saving lives when, you know, over 44,000 people commit suicide uh, in the U.S. every single year, um, when depression is the leading cause of disability in the U.S. and the leading cause in the world, um, you would hope that maybe uh, some of these, you know, governmental organizations might find a way to make the solution more widely available. I think, unfortunately, a lot of them are also um, paid for and bought by big pharma. And there's a revolving door of the people who are approving the drugs and passing the laws and making the drugs and making the profits. And that's really the, the, the center of the issues with our, our system. But I don't wanna to get too political about it all because I really wanna make sure people can learn about ketamine and at least 
get the knowledge that they're otherwise not getting from their doctor or from their neighbor because of the way that this system is working. Yeah, no, and that actually brings me to the next question of what is the difference of ketamine that, you know, you guys are providing at the clinic, right? That it is administered through an IV versus ketamine you're getting on the street or what you were talking about is, what? how do you say, eskimer, the nose spray? Esk- really great question. Or, or the what's the other one that you can put under the skin? Like, what is the difference of, I guess first ketamine, let's, you know, I know many people that have done ketamine recreationally at a party or snorted it. What is the difference between that and the ketamine that you're using for treatment? Okay, um, very quickly, it's very easy to gloss over the difference between the medicine you're taking and how it gets into your body, okay. which we call the root of administration. Do you put it in your eye? You put it in your nose? You put it in your mouth? You put it in your vein? The same medicine by these different routes of administration has a very different impact on your health. And for getting high and some other things, some of these other routes of administration may be very useful, but for therapeutic use, intravenous is different. Now, what's the big deal? It's the same medicine. Well, one of the big deals is when you give it intravenously, it's given gradually over time, which permits you to do the therapeutic work that enables you to be benefited therapeutically by the ketamine. When you put it up your nose uh, or you push it in your IV as a, as a lump, as a bolus, Is that it's, like a ro- it's like a rocket ship, sorry? Is that when it's under the skin? If you like- give it under the skin or if you give it in the muscle, or in it's the muscle. like a rocket ship. You have no ketamine in your brain then you have a lot of ketamine in your brain, then very rapidly you have none again. If you give it into very thick like that, I don't know, I would imagine. Sorry? Like it sounds like you, or I feel like I, you would get very nauseous if you administered ketamine. How funny that so many people complain of nausea as a side effect of using these agents recreationally. Yeah. What do you know? Yeah, but also, you know, you're not necessarily getting ketamine or, or pure ketamine when you're doing it on the street. It could be adulterated and there are copycat drugs and other cutters that, you know, cutting agents people use to make more money. And so there's obviously risks with that as well. But even if you were absolutely getting pure, you know, pharmaceutical grade ketamine, um, you know, as Dr. Manel is explaining, the different uh, routes of administration really make all the difference. And that's why Spravato is effective about 40% of the time and IV infusions in our clinic are effective about 83% of the time. So more than twice as effective IV infusions. And we have a number of things we do a little differently than a lot of other people doing uh, IV infusions, but even still, it's very common to see 70, 75% uh, efficacy for IV and really not higher than 40 for uh, Spravato. And that's not really as much about, again, the molecule as it is the root of administration. Spraying it in the nose is just not a great way to take any medicine because of the way that it's absorbed. But in our clinic, we do six infusions over two to three weeks and they're IV and they're about 55 minutes long each. And uh, you know, the patient just comes in, they recline in a chair, we start an IV, run the medicine, put on relaxing music, a sleep mask, um, you know, with noise canceling headphones and they 
get, we give them a blanket and pillow and make them comfortable. And our medical team is fantastic. And our whole team is wonderful. Our admin team as well. But the medical team really cares for the patients during their treatment, very compassionate and supportive of them through the experience. And it's about, you know, 15 minutes of setup, about 20, 30 minutes of recovery afterwards. And so the whole visit is about an hour and a half to two hours. So that's just kind of a brief overview yeah. of kind of what it looks like uh, at Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles. Now, are most are most people scared before their first infusion? Because I know when I had my first infusion and I met with Dr. Mandel, I thought, oh my gosh, am I going to be like out of my body or not know who I am when this is over? And I remember you told me, you're like, Katie, I could come in the room and say, is there a giraffe in the room? And you'd look down and be like, no. And, and during it, I even said to myself, like I kept saying like, do you remember your social security number? Do you remember your birth date? And I did, but then if I shut my eyes or looked up in my eye mask, it was like, wow, just a whole other world. I mean, it's so bizarre that when you have these infusions, you can look down and see your clothes and the room. But then when you look, or at least for me, when you look, when you shut your eyes or you look up in the mask, it's almost like, I don't even know how to describe it, like a honeycomb effect where things mm -hmm. are just so slow and like, you know, it's, and you are just in this other world. And I'm sure you don't yeah. get that with the other way it's, it's administered. I can't imagine. Cause like you said, it's slow. You don't have, you don't have time for that. And you're really looking for your cues from the people around you who are doing the same thing. But the question you asked was whether people are anxious when they come to the clinic. It's very common for people to be cautious or uncertain or a little bit anxious. And um, it's, it's almost all of them are easily reassured because this is a safe procedure. And it's being done in a medical setting. It doesn't feel clinical or sterile, but it's a medical setting. It feels safe. Yeah. And the people around them have done this thousands of times and are accustomed to making patients comfortable and making them feel cared about and making them feel safe. And that helps people to get over their, their, their concerns. Yeah. I think a lot of people are fearful of just the unknown in general, you know, and something that's new that they've never experienced before. And I think there's a certain level of that that's totally healthy and fine. And it doesn't mean that, you know, there's anything wrong with them or how they're feeling about it. And we, we go to great lengths to create a safe space for them. Um, and with what you're talking about, I would just add that that's one of the distinctions I like to make between ketamine and the other, you know, psychedelics because it does get lumped into the same category as psilocybin and LSD. And there's a lot of exciting um, stuff going on right now with uh, the acceptance and more like mainstream adoption of the other psychedelics, which aren't legal or available yet in the US, but are very rapidly moving in that direction. But you know, with ketamine, you really can reacclimate yourself to your environment if you need to much, much better than the others uh, in most cases. Obviously, it depends on the, the doses you're taking and you could take a, a hero dose and you know you have ego death and really lose, There's you don't even know who or what you are with, with ketamine or any of these drugs. But typically for a therapeutic benefit, um, there's that kind of 
safe level of reassurance or security that you know you could peek under your sleep mask and look around and kind of re you know reorient yourself with the room if you need to yeah. whereas you know something like or for me, lsd or, you know, or so. i i could like i feel i'm yeah. like a total control freak so to me that would help. Sure. maybe some people just want to you don't have sure. to look down well <laughs> Yeah, but it's an option right. it doesn't, not, you know, not everyone needs to take it, but it's kind of a nice option yeah. to have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But like, Sam makes a very important yeah, point. A good point. They're not being given any more medicine than they need to dissociate. Right. So if for some reason they need to get, if you will, back to earth quickly, mm -hmm. their altitude is much lower. The recovery time from intravenous ketamine is much more quick people recover much more quickly and cleanly with less hangover than any other route of administration. Yeah, I could imagine that. And so why the music and the eye mask? Just for people, I mean, because if I was listening to this, I mean, I know why. Why, why do you guys, or Dr. Mayer, why a, do you have that? We had a musician come in yesterday. Actually, it was Monday for his first infusion. And we have the put the eye mask on first because the headphones go over the eye mask. And he had, he, he went about 10 minutes in and I came in to check on him and he said, uh, uh, and I said, you're not using your eye mask. He said, no, nah, what's the big deal? And I said, well, it's kind of a big deal, but it's totally up to you. It's optional. It's on your forehead. You can pull it down or push it up as you wish, but why don't you try it? You, you tell me what the big deal is. So he tried it and I came back and said, oh my God, man. I had no idea what was going on under that eye mask. <laughs> I'm so glad you told me to pull it down. And he said he was seeing his music and yeah. he was seeing colors with it and he was seeing patterns with it. And he, just, he went into a whole articulate thing about architecture and shapes. It's so and wild. Same with the music, Katie. Um, there's a tremendous amount of research on this. It's really a big deal, much more than we can go into today. But even among clinicians, there's a great deal of discussion about the music and what music and how important or unimportant or how much to avoid rhythm and how much to avoid lyrics and how loud we're gonna make it. But the music is like, if you're on a journey and it's a little like a roller coaster. The music is the carpet on which you're riding. Yeah. And it really makes a difference. And people do this without music and they have great results. Right. But everyone that I know who's done it both ways said, oh my God, I'm not doing that music again if I can avoid it. No, I know I, I wanted to listen to Miguel and they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to yeah. listen to Deuter. And, and then once, oh, once I Deuter. had once yeah. I had done many infusions, I thought I can't even imagine this now listening to someone else because it's yeah. so specific. You know, you're in a really um, moldable frame of mind when you're having an infusion, and um, you can definitely be really, uh, and it's a vulnerable state, mm -hmm. and I think you can really be influenced by outside messaging, and so we really want people to have. Um, not have lyrics and to have relaxing tranquil music and to feel comfortable and to not get preoccupied with maybe thinking about things or going in a direction because of, of you know a song or something like right. that or something someone said to them 
And when you have a space where you can just really be open to wherever your mind will take you on its own without external influences, and when do we ever in today's world get to do anything without having external influences in our face 24 seven? No phones, um, yeah. You know, but this hour where there's, yeah, no phone, no social media, no internet, no work, no, no one talking to you, it's just your mind at, and in a relaxed state, um, some really beautiful discoveries can happen. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point because I thought for sure, oh, I have to have my music, it has to be this way, but you're, it's true, you're very impressionable in that time, so. yeah. Um, okay, well, we are going to end with the five questions. Um, so number one, what do you do for a mental break? Like, how, what do you do to relax? Besides ketamine. Uh, a... <laughs> no, we don't, we don't do ketamine to relax. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we, we do um, get a lot of joy out of providing it to people uh, in need. But as far as what I do to relax, um, you know, a lot. I, I, I like to lift weights. I like to work out. I like to move and be physical. I sit at a computer all day long. So, uh, you know, for me, getting getting up and, and moving is really, really good. And um, it's good for my, my mental health. Uh, and then, yeah, also like taking a nice hot bath can be great. Nice hot bath and just sit there. And I would normally in the past, I would do like a podcast or listen to music, but more and more nowadays, I kind of meditate when I do that. So I don't put anything on and I just kind of sit there. And it is often the only mo few moments where I don't have some outside stimulus um, impacting my my feelings or my thoughts. And what about you, Dr. Mano? What do you do for a mental break? I, I meditate or I do something that really involves uh, all of my body, like rowing or sailing, where I really have to keep my head focused on what I'm doing. And by so doing, I'm able to easily not be distracted by all the extraneous things that would otherwise get my attention. Okay. When is the last time you cried? I think since, I don't know what I said last time, but since I last spoke with you, we had a patient give a testimonial as part of a, an interview we were doing. And we were, Sam was really on and it was, he was great. I was doing a pretty good job too, I think. But this woman got up and talked about her experience with ketamine, with her children and her husband. I'm tearing up just remembering. She hit all of the things in her life that this had just transformed. She hadn't been able to get out of bed. She hadn't been able to do self-care. She hadn't been much of a wife or a mother. She hadn't been able to work. And the ketamine really, and her own hard work and her therapy, but the right. ketamine infusions got her up and out of bed, got her being a mom again, got her being a wife again, got her at work again. Uh, she just was so remarkably affecting us to cry. Right. That's great, though. Yeah. yeah. Really oh, great. I wish I could play it for you. It was amazing. It was beautiful. Yeah, very beautiful. Um, for me, I had, a, I had someone in my family um, who was hospitalized recently, and um, that was very difficult for me, and uh, I, I cried a little bit then. Oh no. And I hope actually, they're okay yeah. now. They are actually, they're doing really well. Thank you. 
Um, what are you currently reading? Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. Stephen Johnson, about how public health and especially measures against infectious disease mm -hmm. have so prolonged and enriched and smoothed and simplified our lives. This, this, this guy is an amazing guy. And this is a really good book. All right. Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. Um, I, to be totally honest, I haven't been able to do as much reading as I would uh, like to lately. Uh, but I, I am in the middle of a book on um, Elon Musk, a biography on him. That's yeah, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Are you a Tesla fan, I guess? I like Tesla. I do, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I don't... Um, endorse everything he does or says but I, I do think that it's i do think he's an interesting man a smart man and i there are aspects of his imagination and his perseverance and his work ethic that i respect yeah okay what is the best and worst advice you've been given the worst advice i was ever given was you have a great career as an anesthesiologist you have a good position in the community you're highly respected don't be so stupid as to throw this aside to start giving these people this infusions of this street drug. You're throwing away your, your life and your degree. Wow, someone said that? I'm summarizing <laughs> advice from several different people in the psychiatric community in 2013, 2014, okay. about my decision to migrate from doing surgical anesthesia to doing ketamine infusions full time. Wow. Okay. I don't think it was good advice. But in a way, did that make you just want to do it even more? No, because okay. it was really well meant. It wasn't belligerent. It wasn't shaming. It was, hey, Steve, you got something good going here. Don't be stupid. Right. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? Follow your passion. Be kind and respectful to others, but don't let them choose your path. You're going to be dead soon. Do the best thing you can do with your life until then. Sam? I'd say worst is probably, um, you know, just, just do you, just focus on yourself. Um, I think, you know, self-care is really important, right? You gotta, you gotta put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help others. If you don't take care of yourself, you really can't show up for others. Um, but the idea of like, just do you, like kind of, you know, forget the rest or no one else matters or be put, always put yourself first in a selfish way, self-centered way. Uh, not so good. I don't subscribe to that. Um, I think that not only does it not feel good, but I think I go further and we all go further when I don't do that. Right. Um, and then um, best advice, probably be vulnerable. <laughs> okay. I think that, uh, I think that, um, you know, being vulnerable is difficult for a lot of us. Uh, it is for me. And I think a lot of people have reasons why um, it's not safe or smart. Uh, I do. Um, and as I've gotten older, I think I've realized that there's a lot of value in it and that it's the key to a lot of the kind of connections and success in life that we all want. Right. So good point. And then the last question is, um, what is there a Instagram or Twitter or something on social media that you find uplifting? 
like some account you go, cause I find so many things can be so dire, you know, or you look at something that's supposed to be good or uplifting and it makes you feel worse. So is there something that you guys, both of you visit regularly or, or no, I don't know. I go to the ketamine clinics, Los oh, Angeles. Here we go. The plug. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, whenever I'm feeling down, that's where, that's the, where you that's go. Where, that's where I go. Katie, it sounds like a plug. But when you're feeling down, you go to our Yelp reviews. They're all real reviews by real patients, right. unsolicited. You go to our Yelp reviews and you read them. See if it doesn't make you feel better. Every one of them. That's true. You guys do have good reviews. Many people don't. Well, I, I my sympathies, but I don't read this. <laughs> not when i want to feel good <laughs> yeah i mean when i'm when i'm down i you know i don't um you know i don't know it's a tough question i don't know if there are a lot of like pages i would go to um i think you know i find inspiration from uh dr joe dispenza and his work on meditation and mindfulness and um and like a growth mindset and stuff like that um and, you know, I'm kind of blanking now, but there, no, there but are a couple helpful. other. Yeah, I feel like yeah. people really like his stuff. All right, well, that's it. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode and shouts out to Dr. Mandel and Sam Mandel for joining me. Where can our listeners find you? Can you guys give off? We already heard about the Instagram, so, you know. Well, I didn't say the handle, oh, so. Okay, okay. <laughs> You know, if they want to find me, I Instagram, guess we, we want to know where can we find you guys? Facebook, it's Ketamine Clinics LA. Um, we're Ketamine Clinics on Twitter. Our website is ketamineclinics.com. It's K E T A M I N E C L I N I C S.com. And our phone number, 310 uh, 270-0625. Tons of great information on all those channels, especially the website. And we're always happy to talk to people. If they have any questions at all, uh, we're open and uh, there's no obligation to call. All right, great. Well, that's all folks. Be sure to subscribe to Ben Better HBU. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.